It's so good to be here today. I just love seeing the folks at St. Joe, and, and, just, and it's great to see the kids in church with us today. I just love worshiping as a family, and I think it's special that we come on the fifth Sunday to do that, and that makes sense. And actually, I have a joke for the kids. All right, so kids, this is for you. This is your joke. I have a joke for the parents, too, but they probably won't get it. But I got This is a joke for you. Okay, what did the right ear say to the left ear? Any kids, you can yell it out. What did the right ear say to the left ear? What is that? Between us, something smells. Yes, uh, you like that. That's very good. That's free. I came from the kids at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home. They always send me out jokes because they think my sermons are boring. But yeah, that's that's free. I, some of the adults, I might have to explain that to you. You get it? Okay. Uh, here's one for the adults. Okay, so this is a good one for the adults. When does a joke become a dad joke? This came from the kids as well. When did, when does a joke become a dad joke? When it is a parent. Donnie got it. He spends way too much time on the internet. So very good. Yes. Yes, very well done. And, and, and I love the giggles. I love the laughter. And I think sometimes life gets too busy. There's too much pressure. And we lose the ability to laugh at dumb jokes. And we lose the ability just to have fun. The snow outside reminds me of a time last year when I was down on grounds on a Saturday. And it was cold and it was snowy outside. And and the kids were rammy because it was cold and snowy outside. It was February. So I took, I told them, I said, let's go outside and build a fire in the woods in the snow. And they were like, what do you mean? I'm like, we're going to go build a fire in the woods in the snow. And, and so we went out there, and it was hard because the wood was all frozen. And we wanted to build a fire in the woods in the snow without using a gallon of gasoline. So we had to kind of get it all together. And it took like almost an hour to get the, the fire roaring, but it was. And it was an accomplishment for the kids. And then I said, let's go play. And they went into the woods further and built this ginormous teepee because we gave them time to play. Too often we lose the gift of the giggles and we lose the gift of play because life is way too busy. And for Christians, uh, we can, we're also in danger of losing the gift of joy. Joy. Oh, that biblical word that has so much beneath the surface. I believe joy is God's gift to the Christian and to the Christian family. Joy simply means this deep down sense of well-being because we are at peace with God. Joy, you know, busyness, pressure robs us of the ability to experience that deep-seated joy. Physical pressure, we know, we get the idea, it's the rat race, it's the running from here to there, it's the overcommitments, it's the, it's the bad eating habits, it's all the stuff in between. The physical pressures of, for the kids even, the homework, the emotional roller coasters, and, and it's not just the physical pressures, it's also the emotional pressures that come along with it, the, the ever-changing relationships, the unrealistic expectations, the unresolved grief. All these things, low self-esteem, demands to be heard, unrealistic fears, on and on and on. The list goes on and on. The families, I think it's safe to say, are under a lot of pressure. Physical pressure 
and emotional pressure, and the pressure's got to be released somehow, which is why I love this cartoon. Uh, so, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up. I use this in our parenting workshop. You know, she's got him in a headlock. He'll take a dozen roses. Somewhere along the way, the pressure's got to be released because families are under a lot of pressure. And when we're under a lot of pressure, not only are we at risk of losing sight of the joy, we are at risk of losing sight of the main thing. The main thing. Uh, and for Christians, the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, at the Woodbury Christian Children's Home, we have to be constantly on our guard so that we don't lose sight of the main thing. The house parents living in the trenches with the children. Our house parents live there 24 7. And they're living in the trenches with the kids. They have a 1,200-square-foot apartment attached to a 10-bedroom home. And they live in the trenches with the kids. And every kid's got different ways of learning. You know, cognitive delay flows from abuse and neglect. Cognitive delay flows from fetal alcohol syndrome and from, from all kinds of other things. And, and these house parents, with the tutors and the other support staff, have to help these kids learn. Uh, and it's easy to lose sight of the main thing when you're working with a kid and going on and on and on about how to get them through their multiplication tables or, or get them caught up on reading. Maybe they're at an eighth grade, uh, and but they're at a fourth grade reading level. I mean, it's easy to lose sight of the main thing. We get it. We get where families are. Our families at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home are under a lot of pressure, and we're at risk all the time of losing sight of the main thing. That's why we always remind ourselves of our name. Woodburn's where we live. Christians who we are. Children is who we help, and we do that through a home, a Christian family living experience. And this is a mantra that we, this is our cadence. We're walking down the driveways and different things, because the main thing is the main thing. God's choice to bring us back in relationship with him through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. We just celebrated that at Christmas. How easy that stuff fades into the background as the rat race of January picks back up. We don't want to do that. Uh, we believe at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home that the family, the home, it's a kind of almost interchangeable, the family and the home, we believe this is God's chosen medium for the transmission of of godly lifestyle and values. The church is a helper. The church camps are equippers. Uh, Sunday school teachers are equippers. But the family, the home, that's God's preferred place for the transmission of godly lifestyle and values. If you want to write something on your refrigerator, that's a good thing to put on your refrigerator. It reminds us of the main thing. Uh, yes, your responsibility is to provide safe housing. Your responsibility is to provide healthy food. Your responsibility is to provide opportunities for education and life skill. All this, your opportunities are the same as the children's homes' opportunities. But we don't want to lose sight of the main thing. Pressure causes us to do that. And, and like even for me, at home with our family, we, we give ourselves reminders. I got a built-in forgetter. In my Bible, in the Gospel of Mark, I chose the Gospel of Mark because it's an easier Gospel to come into, uh, is the handprint of our two grandsons, Liam and Kennedy. Of course, you should have seen what it took to get their handprint there. But nonetheless, it's there. Uh, and, and we put their handprints in the Gospel of Mark because I want to read, and I am reading the Gospel of Mark to them, because if I don't, who in the world's going to? That's the point. We have to build in these reminders 
all the way through. And it's difficult in the trenches. So what I thought we would do today is we jump into Luke chapter 10, right? And we'll just step into a home in the first century and see what happens from sunrise to sunset in this home. It's a faith-based home, uh, certainly, and, and it's a home that is, has already believed in the Messiah. Uh, and we'll talk about the context of it, but we're going to be sitting in Luke chapter 10. So if you've got access to a Bible, now's a great time to throw it open. If not, we've got it up on the screen, of course. But Luke chapter 10, we want to settle into this and grab out some things that's going to remind us of how we can stay focused on the main thing. Right. And, and so this passage, it's really an interesting passage, as brief as it is. I, I just want to start off reading it here in verse 38, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Uh, we read, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Now, if you've heard me preach before, you know the phrase speed bump passages or speed bump verses. This transitional verse uh, as Jesus and his disciples were on the way, it's a speed bump. It's supposed to slow us down before we enter into the text. Because we're supposed to ask ourselves, on their way, where? It begs us to answer the question. And in this case, it's freakishly important for us to understand where they're heading to. Because in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, this is this big verse that transitions from where Jesus was to where Jesus is going. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the Bible says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Oh my goodness. He resolutely set out for the passion of Christ. He resolutely set out for the Palm Sunday experience of entering into the Jerusalem. He resolutely set out to teach in the temple to eventually be betrayed and arrested and crucified. He resolutely set out to be buried in the tomb and to experience the resurrection. He resolutely set out to defeat death and to create a way for us to be in right relationship with God. He set out a way for us to have joy, a sense of well-being. It's a big deal. So from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, all the way up to him entering into Jerusalem, that's called the journey of discipleship. What he was doing the whole way was teaching his disciples along the way how to be intentional. And if you forgot, that's your theme for this year. Be intentional. Or maybe it was last year, but it's still on your website. And so I think it's a good one to keep it going. Be intentional, right? And so we're to be intentional. So Jesus wanted his disciples to learn everything there was about being a disciple from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, all the way till he walks into, into Jerusalem. So when we read in Luke chapter 10, as Jesus and his disciples were on the way, that's what it means. So when you're doing your Bible study, let's make sure we pay attention to these, these speed bump verses. We continue reading. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. 
So pretend you're sitting in one of our Bible studies at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home. This is what we teach the house parents with. This is what we teach our Christian counselors with. This is the passage we use to teach our tutors. And so for you, I think it would be great to know this as well, because there's several things that happened in this home between sunrise and sunset when Jesus came to visit them. Certainly we know one of the things that, can, that happened, and it's very obvious to us, this stuff, is, is, is that one of the things that happens in a home is it's, it's, it's a place where we can become easily distracted. Is it home a place we could become easily distracted? Oh my goodness, yes. It's a very easy place for us to major in minors. Oh my goodness. I'm guilty of it. I think everybody is guilty of majoring in minors. You're going to finish all that food on that plate. And flip over the table because of it. You're going to finish that homework. If we have to stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning, you're going to pull those weeds until there's no sight of those weeds. These are the things I used to tell my kids. So uh, I've come a long way. <laughs> it's been good training with Vicky, but we, it's a place where we can easily major in minors. But one of our house parents relates an experience years ago where one of the children had a ton of homework he wasn't doing. He was lying about it. You know, is your homework done? Yes. Okay. It wasn't for like two weeks. And so he had this mountain of homework to, done, to get done, and, and he was going to do it with them on this day. And they were up to almost midnight. And it was frustrating. The kid was frustrated. The house parent was frustrated. And he has enough humility, you know, keeping with the community, to recognize that he was majoring in minors. And he learned that. And the child learned that. And they both grew because of it. The home is an easy place for us to major in minors. And don't get me wrong. What Martha was doing was perfectly normal. Hospitality was a big deal in the Bible times. We've kind of lost some of that in these days. But back then, it was everything stopped. And you cared for the physical needs of the people visiting with you. And that's what she was focused on. It wasn't bad. It just wasn't the main thing. There's a balance in all of that. And I think one of the things we as parents, certainly as adults, have to learn is to find that balance between the main thing and, and the other thing. So this is a simple thing for us to come alongside of, uh, majoring in minors, becoming easily focused and easily distracted all at the same time. The other thing we kind of see in this passage, which I love this question, Martha asked Jesus, the Messiah, which at this point she already believed he was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. Hundreds of years the Jews have been waiting for the Messiah. He was there and in her house. And she asked him, what I would suggest is one of the silliest questions in Scripture. Probably one of the dumbest, I mean, if you could use the S word, one of the stupidest questions in Scripture. Uh, because she said to Jesus, Lord, don't you care? You know, we read Philippians chapter 2 today. He left the throne room to come into our world to experience the death, burial, and resurrection, to be rejected and betrayed. And she said, don't you care? Of all the stupid things you could ask, I think that's probably one of them. Uh, but how, how true is that for us? We start having problems, and the first thing we do is, don't you care? Yes, he cares. I, and if you're around any kids for, for more than any time, you'll get a silly question from a kid. It's still be a real obvious silly question. I, I remember one of the times I, I pulled out you know, the vacuum cleaner. The kids were lazing it out on the couches. 
uh, watching TV, and I pull out the vacuum cleaner, and I untangle the cord, because it was all tangled up, probably because the kid was using it last. Uh, so I untangle the cord, and I'm standing right in the middle of the TV room, and they're all kind of looking around me, and I'm, I'm, I'm finally I plug it in, and I'm getting ready to turn it on, and one of my kids said to me, are you vacuuming? No, we're square dancing. What do you think we're doing? Of course we're vacuuming. We're having salsa and chips. I'm just using the vacuum cleaner to mix it up. Of course we're, I mean, it's the stupidest question in the world. Uh, but home is home. Isn't home, isn't home the place we're supposed to ask dumb questions? Shouldn't home be a safe place to ask a dumb question? You know, or, I love the other one. Later in the day, same bunch of kids lazing around the TV. I, I, you know, I say to them, put your pajamas on and, brush your teeth and, and get a book to read, and, and they look at me and say, what is it, bedtime? No, we're, we're going to Hawaii. Of course it's bedtime. Yes, that's what I'm telling you, put your pajamas on. I mean, kids ask the silliest questions. Uh, we can ask the silliest questions, right? Uh, and, I, and I think we should create a home environment where they're allowed to ask the silly questions, right? I, I, I think... Our adult kids, my wife and I have four children, our youngest is 21, it's not uncommon for them to ask something that I can't believe they're asking. I, I never, I think it was this past Easter, one of them said, I think we were actually heading to the Auburn Church of Christ for Good Friday service, and one of them, I won't say which one it was, said, remind me again, what is Good Friday? She had been, so there's a sheet, so we have two and two, so she, she had been to church camp all of her life, thousands of hours of Christian education, and, but she felt safe enough to ask, what is Good Friday? Don't assume your kids know what these things are. And I think we should create an environment that they could ask dumb questions. That's what we try to do at the Woodbury Christian. We want it to be a safe place to ask dumb questions. And I love the way Jesus responded to Martha, right? And he says, and, it's, and you would think he would have scolded her. But, but she says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And then, and then in the Greek, the tone changes, which is trying to, it's trying to be portrayed in the English here, because in the Greek, they don't, they don't use exclamation points. Uh, they don't use stuff like that. So we have to enunciate the, the uh, things differently. Uh, so, but the tone changes in the Greek from her demanding this to Jesus had a softer answer. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried about and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Jesus didn't say, you're stupid. <laughs> How many times am I going to tell you this thing? He didn't scold her for asking the dumb question. He just taught her on the heels of it. I pray that you don't get so busy and so pressured that you're not able to respond to a dumb question with a simple teaching. This is what needs to happen in the Christian home, so we don't lose sight of the main thing. Now, based on what I read, there's a third thing, obviously, that, that the home is for. Uh, the home is a place where we learn to manage conflict, right? I think if you're in a relationship with someone for more than 48 seconds, you're going to have conflict with them. It's just how we're wired. Unless Vicky and I are, unless Vicky and I are unique. But I don't think we are. <laughs> so more than 48 seconds, you're going to have conflict. And, and, and so a home should be a place where you learn and teach how to manage conflict. You can't avoid conflict, right? You might as well learn how to manage conflict. 
And managing conflict is so important in the Christian home. I think it what separates us from Christian and non-Christian homes. We do, I do a parenting workshop where we focus 100% for an hour and a half on managing conflict. And there's a lot that goes into it, and I just want to share a little bit of what we talk about in this Managing Conflict workshop. And, you know, one of the things we talk about in the Managing Conflict workshop is, is uh, helping people understand the emotional atmosphere of their home. What I mean is, is your home two degrees below boiling? Does any little thing set it off? I lived like that for a while. You know, but it's good for parents to take stock. What's the emotional atmosphere of your home? What, when you come home from work, what do you what are you bringing into the home? I remember I was commuting 72 miles each way when I was an engineer, living in the Philadelphia area, driving over to Newark. Psychos on the road, of which I was one of them. And, and so, and I brought all that garbage into the house. Uh, my friend who was disciplined me said, Joe, why don't you stop at a park? Why don't you stop at the park before you go home? It's about a block from the house. And let some of the negative energy come off of you. He's like, just don't park your car where you're looking at kids. They'll think you're a stalker. I was like, okay. He said, just, just shift. And it's so important to do that. What's the emotional atmosphere of your home? Uh, another big thing for managing conflict is trying to understand what's your automo- or your automated mode of managing conflict. Most of the time, we manage conflict based on how our parents and grandparents manage conflict. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do I manage, what's my first, re- what's my facial expressions? I had a guy who was working with me who made me do this in front of a mirror. I had a different look on my face than I thought I did. <laughs> and so what's our auto mode for managing conflict? Another big thing is, is identifying the triggers. Every family's got triggers. Whether it's the in-laws, the outlaws, whether it's a blended family, whether it's money, it doesn't matter. Something, there's always a trigger in a family. Maybe it's too many dogs or not enough dogs. There's always something going on. Uh, another big thing is preventative measures. Doing things ahead of time, before a conflict comes, that conveys to the people you live with that you have their best interest in mind. I used to give Vicky, she had four kids, and they were all running around, and I was lucky enough to go off to work, and she had to stay home with them. And uh, I used to give her a little chunky bar, a little candy bar, little chunky bars I used to have with raisins and nuts in them. And, and I would leave, leave it on her on her. Uh, her driver's seat before she took the kids to work, uh, to school, and and, uh, and I'd go off to work. And I kind of find out later that, of course, what ended up happening was a kid would fight over a chunky bar. And they were raging out. And she, she, they were just screaming at each other on the way to school. That's kind of, but I thought it was a good idea. I just wanted to give her this idea that it's going to be okay. You know, but these random acts of kindness, the goal is to help people think that you have their best interests in mind because... You do. And then, of course, the last big thing for managing conflict is learning how to fight fair in the sandbox. Arguments are going to come. Some of the things we tell people is stay on topic. (laughs) If you're going to argue about the stupid sugar, stick with the sugar. You know, don't go off into the in-laws. And so stay on topic. If we stay on topic, most arguments end in like two or three minutes. And so these are the things we try to teach people to do. Learn how to manage conflict in your home. Because after all, (laughs) they have access to your toothbrush. And you better, you better be nice to them. <laughs> so, so they have access to your toothbrush. Now, of course, it happens in a lot of different ways. And the kids learn this at a very young age. I remember when our kids were really young. Our youngest was like five or six years old or something like that. It was right before we moved to Johnson Bible College. And we were sitting, I was sitting in our, our house. We had a big bay window overlooking our backyard. Typical suburban layout. And I was looking out the bay window. And, and uh, our oldest daughter comes running through the view of the bay window. 
And, and, I, and she, she was giggly, but she had a look of terror on her face at the same time. I don't know if you've ever seen a kid like that. They were kind of la- laughing in fear. And so she was, and I was like, that's kind of funny. But I thought, eh. And so I don't, I don't need to be involved. They're outside. I'm inside. I don't hear them. So that was fine. And then just a second or two later, our next youngest daughter comes running through the view of the window. And she had the same look. Giggles with terror. I was like, okay, something's going on. But I, I just, I wasn't invited into the situation, so I wasn't going to join. And, and and then just a few seconds later, our youngest son comes running through the view of the window, five or six years old, carrying a baseball bat, chasing these two girls down. I don't know what they did, but he was going to resolve the conflict. Uh, and, and that's when he, so he comes running, and he had this look, this grin on his face. So I figured it wasn't too bad. Uh, but I had been known to, like, feed him sand and all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, he, they did something to him that took him over the edge, and he was going to manage conflict his way with the plastic baseball bat. And so off he went to do it. Now, of course, the girls ran into the house. And that's my next point. They ran into the house because our home was a retreat for them. Home must be a retreat for these kids and for yourselves and for your spouse. Home must be a retreat, a sanctuary. Vicky's grandmother used to teach this. It's a, it's the retreat from the outside world. Oh my goodness, our middle schoolers and high schoolers need a safe place to come home just to be themselves. It's so incredibly important. Even Isaiah, uh, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, way back before the exile, God speaks to the prophet Isaiah about the future that was going to be realized despite the exile. And God said to the people of faith in the Old Testament, he said, my people will live in peaceful dwelling places. Does this passage describe your home? A peaceful dwelling place. My people will live in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. This is how we designed the Woodburn Christian Children's Home. And it takes a lot of effort. But one of the things these kids need the most is security, safety, and a place of rest. That isn't just for the kids at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home. Maybe one of these kids need this. Security, safety, and rest. And there's a living room for living. There's a kitchen for cooking. There's a dining room for dining. None of these rooms are designated for screaming at each other. If you want to scream at somebody, go out to their front porch. That way people will see what you're doing. You probably won't do it as much. <laughs> That's what they told me. They said, like, Joe, if you're going to, we, we, we're a blended family, so we had, a, we had struggles with that in, for a couple of years. And we would go for a walk. We had a dumb dog. We went for a walk. And we were able to work out the problems of the family while walking because we wanted to maintain the sanctity of the home. This helps us keep the main thing the main thing. And I think it's an important thing for Christian families to be known as a retreat. I, I'll never forget one of our kids came home, a middle school, middle schooler at the time, came home, uh, took the bus, dropped off about a block from our house, and I made a commitment to the family to be home two days a week when they came home off the bus. That was my commitment because I wanted to be present in their home. I had to arrange my work schedule so I was present when they got home. And that was important to me. It took a long time to get in place, but it's in place. So they're just walking up the the, uh, the street to the house, and 
I knew something was wrong because she was walking a little weird and just it wasn't her carefree self. And she hit our front yard and started walking across the front yard. I knew something was not right. And, and, and sure enough, I opened the door and I said, welcome home. And she crossed the threshold and just started bawling. She just started weeping. And I, I gave her a hug. And thankfully, for a moment of clear, I didn't ask her what it was that I needed to fix. <laughs> I just gave her a hug and let her cry. And here she had, I found out later, she had a horrible experience with 200 middle school girls in the cafeteria, and she felt so horrible all afternoon, but she held it in. She held it in. She held it in until she got home, and then she got to the retreat and, bah, just let it all out. That's why we need the home to be a retreat, because if we don't provide a retreat, they'll find one, and it's not going to be healthy probably. We want to provide the retreat. It's so incredibly important. It's not just for our kids. It's a retreat for others. And kind of winding this down, you know, I, I'm the, I, I love one of the passages uh, that we find in the Bible in Mark chapter uh, 1, uh, when Jesus is setting out on his ministry. You know, Mark picks up after, way after the birth narrative, and Mark picks up the gospel right when Jesus begins his public ministry. And, and, and we read in chapter 1, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went over to her, took her hand, and helped her up. And the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That happened in the home. But listen to what happens next. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many of those who had various diseases. Peter's home became a retreat for others. I'll never forget, it was a defining moment in our family, living in Auburn, a couple years ago, we've been there since 2009, uh, high schoolers, you know, there was this horrible car accident before the football game, and two of the high school football players died instantly. They happened to be our friend, our son's best friends, over at the house all the time. They were alive at lunchtime. They were not alive at dinner time, And the whole town was flipped upside down because of this, this, this seemingly random act of just sadness. And that night, it was a Friday around 6 o'clock, the accident happened. That night, 30, 40 teenagers showed up at our doorstep. I'm the town, I'm the preacher at the Auburn, I was at the Auburn Church of Christ. And they knew our son was a preacher's kid. And they were all friends. And they all came to our house at night. And they, because... Teenagers define their experiences through their peer group, and their peer group was not able to define this, this trauma, this grief. So they showed up at our door, place, door, and thankfully our home was a retreat. We weren't really able to explain why it happened. We just wept with them. And then we went over to the Auburn Church of Christ, and we, we all held candles in a big circle and wept together. Because that's, well, what could you do but experience the experience with them? And it all happened because they knew our house was a retreat. They also knew it was a feed trough because they always came here and ate everything. But nonetheless, it was a retreat. Uh, but, but is your home a retreat for your kids and your family and their friends? I pray that is what it is. Because that's our goal at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home. So in closing, uh, we can't overlook the fact that a home should be a place to dream dreams. You know, Martha and Mary experienced a lot that day. Uh, certainly, they experienced the conflict. They, they were majoring in minors. But Mary sat at the master's knee 
and listened. And in her mind, she knew what she was experiencing. Later, when her brother would die, she knew that Jesus could have kept him from dying, but she also experienced his, her brother coming back to life through the power of the Messiah. In Christmas time, we just read in, in, the, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, when, when the angel visited Joseph in his home, and he gave him the message and said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And then when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. In a sense, home is a place to realize our dreams. I don't want to take this too out of context, but his dream was in his home. And I think one of the greatest things we could help our kids do is dream the dreams and then help realize them. You know, when kids come into our care, they're in survival mode, right? And about a year and a half into it, they start emerging out of survival mode and get into development mode. Then they start dreaming the dreams. You can always tell because everybody wants to be a veterinarian. What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a veterinarian. Okay, that's great. So everybody wants to be a veterinarian. There's a lot of veterinarians around here. So the, uh, but they start dreaming the dreams. I think our kids, because of the pressures, lose the ability to dream the dreams. I love what David Thoreau said. Go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you've always imagined. And that starts in the home, the Christian home, where the main thing is the main thing. So in conclusion, I think the statement that hops up on the screen here kind of fits everything. Home is ultimately not about a place to live, but about the people with whom you are most fully alive. At the Woodburn Christian Children's Home, this is what we pray. The kids walk away. Now, sometimes they don't realize this for three years, five years, maybe when they're 40, uh, they realize this. But home is a place where we can become most fully alive in Christ. And so that's our prayer. It's about love, it's about relationships, and it's about community. It's about Emmanuel, God with us. It's not so much about cooking and cleaning and doing homework, although that's all very important. It's just not the main thing. Uh, and, and it's a home. is a place where we model Christ. And so I pray this is your pursuit. Uh, and, I, and I pray you pursue this with all your heart because your children will, will recreate a home in keeping with the home you've created. That's that generational projection process. They will recreate the home that you have created. So let us take this earnestly. And let us pursue this with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our mind and strength. And then we will have joy beyond joy. Two steps forward. And in my case, five steps back. But we're still going forward on some level. So we do this one day at a time. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, good day. It's a good day to be in your word, just settling into the black marks on the page and let them minister to our hearts. We pray, Father, for your grace and your holiness to come across us. 
And we pray for our kids. Oh, Lord, we pray for our kids. The thing that they're experiencing is no different than what we experience. Just they just look a little different. But, Father, we pray that Christ will come fully into their hearts and they'll make all decisions through what they believe Jesus would do. We pray this all in his name. Amen.